James Hahn II. And I'm Mark LaCour. And you're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by Bulwark. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Episode number 86. Coming into the fall, Mark LaCour, you got your pumpkins carved yet? <laughs> no, no pumpkins. And there's a long story to that that basically involves a little boy and a pumpkin carving knife. <laughs> oh, I forgot about that story. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Halloween's not that far away. Halloween is not that far away. And um, we're going to be in Calgary before we know it. Uh, it's going to be in May, so it, it might be when we know it. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, so so we're on the road. Uh, we're, we'll, we'll be at the Geo Convention in uh, Calgary, Canada, May 15th and 19th. We're speaking during the luncheon. Um, if you're in the oil and gas industry and you're noticing that we've made the turn and that things are starting to pick back up, now's the time to spend your marketing dollars in a place that makes sense. And this is the place to make sense. And you know what they did, James? I, I think they put together a package for our listeners. Yeah, just for our listeners. So if you want to get in front of all these thousands of oil and gas companies, they put together a special exhibitor package. So you get the 10 by 10 space, which is normally $1,800 for $1,600. So $1,600 to get in front of that many people in the oil and gas industry, that's a small price to pay. And then they also, um, they're also we also have the ability to uh, pick up two lunch sponsors. And the lunch sponsor is uh, get eight seats at the lunch, and then you get the opportunity to introduce the speakers or close the shows. Also do the seat drops, and the uh, uh, and you get branding throughout the show and social media. So once again, another good use of your marketing dollars to get in front of a bunch of people in the oil and gas industry. Well, that usually runs $10,000. Yeah, right. So if you want to um, take advantage of this, reach out to Dust Dustin. Uh, we'll have Dustin's uh, email information in the show notes and just tell him that we sent you his way. Yeah, Dustin at geoconvention.com. Do we stand corrected? I'm trying to figure out what's going on with our email at the top of the show here. Yeah, so we don't stand corrected. What it is is um, we got we I got reached out and by a bunch of students, uh, particularly Adam. Uh, Adam, I'm gonna butcher your last name. Adam Kaversky uh, at Kravisky. Tulane. At two, he's a student at Tulane in their Masters of Energy um, program, and he just wanted to let us know that we have a bunch of fans over there too. Um, over there in New Orleans. So big shout out to that gang over there. And thanks, Adam, for reaching out and letting us know that y'all listen. Ooh, Tulane. I got some history on Tulane campus. Might have gone to a to a Kappa party or two over there. Um, and we could talk about that offline, Adam. Hit me up. Um, let's get in this week's, uh, this week's stories. We've got plenty of them to get to. Let's kick it off with Russia and Turkey sign a gas pipeline deal. And they also talk Syria. So let's take it one at a time, I suppose. Yeah, so this is actually interesting because you remember not that long ago, Turkey shot a Russian plane out of the sky. <laughs> I do remember. We talked about that on the show. Yeah, and that, that tends to degrade diplomatic relations. And um, Turkey apologized for it. It was an accident. Um, and it looks like uh, Russia and Turkey are starting to strengthen their financial bonds because it benefits both of them. This pipeline is, is a huge pipeline project to go under the uh, Black Sea. It was proposed before, um, but when uh, relationships started to break down, they just could not be pulled off. Now they're coming back together. The, what they're doing is Turkey's going to be able to capitalize on uh, routing this gas outside of the Ukraine back into Europe. So it'll make them like an, an energy power in that part of the world. And then Russia has a new route to market, which they desperately need. So from the Russian-Turkey point of view, this makes just great business sense. From the Europe point of view, it's, it's going to allow Europe to have another supply of gas, another route of gas, even though it's still coming from Russia. Um, you know, they, they haven't had any outages um, which I sometimes find hard to believe if you look at how old and aging the infrastructure is that goes through Ukraine. So this will be a way to uh, uh, boost productivity and a decrease failure rate 
you know, all at the same time. Yeah. So it's interesting. He said he actually put put it forward in 2014 for the first time. So I guess, yeah, shooting the plane down did sort of slow things down. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that, that would do that. Um, what else do we need to know about this? So um, you, you have the, what's going on with the Islamic stake and, and Turkey is really worried about that. And then you get into the whole Syrian debate where the U.S. is on one side and Russia's on the other side. And Turkey just wants peace and quiet because it's so close to them. So um, this is a bit of a political nightmare for literally everybody that's involved. Um, you know, Russia has been accused of trying to prop up the, the current regime, which is the U.S. Uh, has pegged him on so many uh, human rights uh, human rights violations. So this is this is just a mess. There's no clear sight on what is right and what is wrong or where this should end up. You know, hopefully what happens is the fighting stops and they get some type of government in place in Syria that will allow normal diplomatic relations and then let, you know, eventually get the free market in and let the people figure out what they want to do. But we're not nowhere near close to that yet. In the meantime, I don't really see anything here talking about how long it's going to take to build out the pipeline or how, exactly when it'll come online or anything like that. Yeah. So for a project of this size, it'll be done in stages. Um, so they'll get the first pipe part of the pipeline built. Um, and then they'll actually um, start doing some transportation so they can start making some money and they'll use that money to build out the next uh, layer. So when you think of, when I say pipeline, everybody thinks of a single piece of pipe. This won't be a single joint of pipe going from Russia under the Black Sea to Turkey. It'll be multiple pipes and pump stations and lift stations and compressor stations and all kinds of stuff. So it's a big project. Yeah. And then also you got to wonder, because right now it has to go through Ukraine. So I, I I don't know what's Putin doing with um, bypassing Ukraine. Who it's, knows? It, it, well, no, I can tell you exactly what it is. Um, because of the the infighting that's going on in, in Ukraine, they can't upgrade the infrastructure. Those pipelines and those compressor stations are old. I mean, ridiculously old. And they've been wanting to upgrade. They've been wanting to bypass all that because it's actually cheaper just to go around and to try to rebuild it. And this is what they're doing here. They're just going around instead of trying to worry about trying to rebuild that ancient, ancient inf infrastructure in Ukraine. All right. Well, sticking with our theme around the cold, cold war we've got going here, Exxon faces collateral damage from a new cold war. What the heck is going on here? Yeah, this, this is a good article. I read this and it's, um, it is actually very thought provoking. So if you've listened to the show for any time, you've heard me tell this, this story before where Exxon is, I think, the best oil and gas engineering project management company on the planet. But they're running out of places to drill because of nationalizing oil fields globally. And so they have a ton of cash. They have the most experts. Um, best engineers in the world, and then running out a place to drill. So what happens is any oil company is, is in production in some manner, right? Which means that the, their existing reserves are being depleted, which means they need to go find new reserves that at least equal to what they're producing so they can be net. And hopefully you'd be able to find more reserves than you're actually producing so you can your barrels in reserve will grow. Exxon's big. Exxon does things big. Big projects, big fields, big production. And so um, he said, when did all this start? In early 2000s, um, uh, Exxon partnered with Russia and they, uh, they formed a joint venture um, with, um, God, what's the Russian oil and gas? With uh, Rosneft. Yeah. And so this was to develop some of the huge uh, fields that, quite honestly, that Russia can't, Rosneft can't develop itself uh, in the Arctic and Black Sea, that Siberia, the whole area right there. And so this was great for Exxon. What happened, though, is when um, the, um, when, the U.S. and Europe imposed sanctions um, because of um, a Russian's invasion of Croatia. Um, 
those sanctions were very specific about what oil and gas technology could be brought into Russia. The stuff that is prohibited is exactly the stuff that ExxonMobil needs to help Rosneft go in production. So Exxon spent all this money, and the, you have uh, all these reserves that are proven that they can get out of the ground, and they can't do it. And if you notice what's been going on politically, whether you think it's right, wrong, or indifferent, um, the relationship between Russia and U.S. is starting to go, or has been slowly going south. It's been slowly going, getting worse and worse. Um, um, I'm sorry, I said Croatia earlier. It was Ukraine that that the sanctions start with. Um, I get lost in those countries over there sometimes. Yeah. But um, so if Exxon's made this investment and they can't get their go in production, it's going to hurt Exxon's barrels on reserves because they were counting on this in the future. So this is what the story is about. Um, do I think Exxon doesn't have a plan B? I, I promise you Exxon has a plan B, C, D, E, and F, all the way probably to Y. Um, do I think this is going to make an impact uh, long-term wise to Exxon? No. Do I think it'll make an impact to them short-term? Yeah. Um, you know, Exxon's going to struggle a little bit to replace its its reserves, at least its organic reserves. So um, we'll see where this goes. Um, from what I hear from the street in Europe and here in the U.S., um, a lot of people are ready for the sanctions to be lifted. Um, whether that rolls up to our politicians or not, I, I don't know. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on this story. Um, you know, it's it's Exxon really has no choice. And, you know, BP is also involved with this in, in separate fields, separate development. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll keep an eye on this and see where this goes. Yeah, his Putin's rhetoric these days is is pretty strong for sanctions being lifted. But it's, it's interesting whether focusing on such mega projects is a good way to go is debatable. But for now, that is Exxon's way. And it talks about how they took a, a, a hit when um, Wolf Research Analyst Paul Sankey has pointed out uh, the cut to Exxon's AAA credit rating by Standard & Poor's was directly related to these concerns. So, so it, it, like you said, they're a big old ship and, and they, they focus on very, very, very large projects. And I guess right here, they're sort of wondering if that's the right way to go. Yeah, and that, that's actually a valid concern. It's um, we've, because of technology, we've been able to factorize or, or turn into a factory um, the process of producing oil. So in the old ways, you had these huge, huge financial, large capex, long-term projects where you did all the math up front. Typically, they're offshore, and you made money by hitting your project delivery dates. In the on land, in the uh, shale plays, in fracking, it's all about how quickly can you punch a hole in the ground. It's not a me mega project; it's a very small project times a million. Yeah. So. Um, you know, the, the world's changing. And I promise you, if this business model, if Exxon figures out this business model is not uh, the best in the future, they'll change. Yeah, they will. They're Exxon. <laughs> They're Exxon. <laughs> Talk to anybody who sells anything to Exxon. I mean, the people that work there are just geniuses. Um, let's talk about Pemex. Pemex looking to export Maya crude to the U.S. West Coast. This is kind of an interesting story. Yeah, especially for a country that has to import fuels right now, right. <laughs> fuels and natural gas. Um, yeah, so what happens is this Maya crude, and first thing, typically crudes are have a name, and, and there's no rhyme or reason how they're named. Like the Brent crude in the North Sea is named after a goose, <laughs> a Brent goose uh, that was come by Shell. Um, typically, the, the crudes are named for what they are. This is a little bit different because the, the Mexico's Maya crude, it's a heavy crude, is a mix. And I don't remember exactly where the mix has come from, but it's three or four different uh, uh, producing areas that they mix together and what they export is called the Maya crude. 
It's heavy, which means you need a very sophisticated refinery to actually be able to deal with it. But if you can refine it, you get better yields at it. And of course, the U.S. Have, has the best, most sophisticated refineries in the world. So what's going on is Mexico can't really refine this crude themselves. So they want to ship it to the West Coast, which historically they have for a long time. And the refineries on the West Coast um, then take this crude and they're sophisticated and large enough to actually be very profitable. This. So um, we're going to see where this goes, because what's happened is Mexico Mexico's in a, in a bad place. So there's an increase in demand, especially for electricity in Mexico. But they're, when they nationalized the oil fields, they, they immediately started having declining production. And it got so bad that the government had to not unnaturalize, but they had to change some laws so that the U.S. could bring in, or U.S. and Europe service companies could bring in uh, well stimulation techniques to help them increase production. So, and at the same time, but here they're exporting crude. And of course, the reason they're exporting it is they can't really refine it themselves. So it's, it's a bit of a dynamic process. Um, Mexico had some blocks that went off for auction and there was a bunch of high hopes in Mexico that the U.S. and European, the big guys would go in and buy these blocks and they didn't. Um, so it's, it's, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that needs to change. It's interesting. Um, nothing against my friends that work at Pemex, but historically Pemex has had a, a bit of a uh, corruption problem. And I'm even hearing now that the government is driving that out, which would, which is huge. So let, we'll keep eye on this one, see where it goes. Well, let's let's talk about the opposite side of it, or the other side of the coin. Does it even make sense that the U.S. West Coast would be importing crude at all because of the fact that California is historically such a rich oil producer? Yeah, but it's once again, it's it's in the U.S. We're in this. It's not weird. It makes total sense to me, but for somebody outside, it probably looks weird. Our refineries are set up, most of them, to process heavy, complex crudes. Mm. And most of the crudes that we produce on land in the U.S. is light crude. So we can't really refine it very well. So it actually does make sense to import heavier crudes from the Middle East or Canada or Mexico, which our refineries can, can you know, run with, and then take our light sweet crudes and ship it to the refineries in Mexico or in Central and South America who don't have the sophisticated refiners we have that are perfectly fine refining the light sweet crude. I, I know it doesn't quite make sense. It still makes us um, – um, um, uh, energy net. It's just that we're importing stuff that we like better. Sort of like part of the year California imports Florida oranges and part of the year Florida imports California oranges. Yeah. Same, same thing. Yeah, it makes sense. So it's not so much a um, a strike against the, I don't know, is it backwards um, uh, policies of drilling in California? Oh, I would say backwards. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not just drilling. It's it's everything to or almost everything to do with the oil and gas industry. That that state, the the culture, the political culture of that state is pretty much uh, anti-oil and gas, which just cracks me up because they have no idea. And then they complain about why their fuel cost is 40% more than anywhere else in the U.S. Like you did it to yourself. Yeah, but in this case, you're saying it's, it's, more, of a, it's more of a situation where our, their refineries are just more suited for that production. Yeah, it's – um, uh, what is the Chevron refinery? Damn it, I can't remember the name of it. El Segundo. So there's a, a El Segundo, California. Chevron has a big refinery. And it's, man, it's one of the most sophisticated refineries on the planet. So if you have anybody out there listening from El Segundo, I've been there. Y'all doing some really cool stuff. All right. How about seeking alpha? MLPs, yield retreat, no holiday for MLPs. We touch on MLPs here and there. What's going on here? Yeah. So w- what's happening is in these uncertain commodity markets, and, and um, you know, James, we, you know, this is the oil and gas, oil and gas this week show. 
But if this was the oil and gas cheese show, we'd be having we'd be having the same conversations. There's an oversupply of cheese in North America right now, and so their their uncertainty in their commodities. Um, so, but what's happening is 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 MLPs master limited partnerships for anybody who's never heard of it. Yeah, in uh, yeah, master limited partnership is is something that's predominant in the energy industry, and it gives um, companies a certain tax benefits. Um, you get the tax benefits of a partnership. Um, but but the um, profit is a pass through profit, so it's it's just a way to uh, better uh, build your business in a way that gives you the best benefits from a, a tax point of view. But you also can trade MLPs like their shares, so it's it's, it's kind of almost like a hybrid. But anyway, what's going on is they're not doing real well right now, which means they're not trading real well. Now this is a good article if you want to understand the details of what's going on. But I have to. Um, this is something they they didn't talk about, but I have to throw this in. The conventional stock portfolios aren't doing really well for oil and gas companies either. So, you know, when when you're in a market that's not strong, um, regardless of how you structure your company financially, it, it's it, you're not going to have the value that you did before. And it's just, you know, and 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 once again, like, even when the markets are strong, you always have guys that do great, and you always have guys that don't do great. And that, it's going on right now in so, the MLP space. Well, we just got done talking about how maybe Exxon needs to eventually look at how they do business is mlp sort of a historic trend as well or is this just a function of the market um this is why we need our financial people which which we, we're, <laughs> we're working on this we're yeah. working on this um mlp seemed to be a trend years ago you know 10 years ago eight years ago um and but in the last couple of years you've seen several mlps um dissolve the mlp and go back to more uh conventional corporate structure um that stuff gets really complex and it's it's tax laws and tariffs and hedges and cost of capital and just a lot of financial stuff that some really smart people sit down and figure out which corporate structure makes the best sense for what they're going through right now. Well, we'll keep working on that that financial side of things. Sassel, Sassel espouses multi-asset virtues of a 11 billion US project amid cracker rivalry. Yeah, this is a really, really, really good article. Um, if um if you want to see something cool, actually click on the link in the show notes and look at the picture of, of um, the um, storage tanks that are going up in the lake. <laughs> it looks Charleston. like some uh, some kind of uh, Star Wars thing going on out there. Yeah, so somebody actually said this looks like the spaceships featured in Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones, and they actually do. Um, you know, I can't talk, I I, I can't spout the good a good enough scenario of what's going on in petrochemicals, especially ethylene. Um, it's it's a bright future. If you're uh, in the industry and you're singing doom and gloom, it's not doom and gloom. Go look at the ethylene crackers. They're everywhere. There's $85 billion worth of them right here in our backyard being built. They can't hire people quick enough. Um, they got to staff up the uh, large construction projects. Money's everywhere. And this is a story about staff oil. Settle. I mean, um, um, thank you, which is an uh, African uh, NOC. And they're over here building some of the largest ethylene crackers in the world. And it's a... It's a huge chemical project, petrochemical project, and it's um it's going to end up being a 1.5 million ton a year ethylene cracker, which will basically triple the um, stat oils, um, sas oils, uh, uh, petrochemicals productions here in the U.S. And it's um you know huge. You know, I think it's 12 billion dollar a year project. Um, it, they're going to end up needing about uh, 670 uh, billion barrels a day of ethylene, which will come from uh, natural gas. And that's what's being used to convert to plastics. Um, and they're in this, this race, this global race. Um, the people that get these ethylene crackers stood up first in the U S will get these large, very profitable long-term contracts. 
The people that get their ethylene crackers stood up next will have smaller contracts, less profit, but still you'll be able to make money. And the people that get the ethylene crackers stood up last are going to go out of business. And they all know this. So it's, it's, it's literally it's a, a gold race. Rush. Yeah. It's a, it's a gold rush and it, but it's good. And it's, you know, it just, you know, it's, it's, it shows you that oil and gas being used as fuel is, is, is declining, but oil and gas used to make products is increasing. And then it's a good thing. It's a good thing for the world. It's a good thing for us. It's a good thing for employees. It's, you know, it's prosperity for everybody. 1.5 million ton a year ethane cracker, and it's going to produce um, ethylene, polyethylene, alcohols, and ethoxalates. All right, I nailed that one. Yeah, they 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 all produce um, more than um, ethylene, um, ethylene. I but I just call them ethylene crackers because yeah. it's too complex to rattle off everything they produce. Yeah, so it talks about some of their growing pains Cecil's going through as well, but it's not a, a total smooth transition. Tell us about that. Well, they've had some, um, this is actually a good thing to talk about. They've had uh, to increase their budget projection by, I think, two and a half, two point one, two point two billion $2.2 And you know why, James? Um, because they need to build more of these things? No. So this project actually went over budget. They originally said it was going to be, I think, $9 billion, and it went up to $11 billion. 11, can, yeah. Can you want to get, guess why the increase? Um, you tell me, man. You're putting me on the spot. I'm looking silly. So it, labor. They can't find enough yeah, labor, so they're having to yeah, pay more for people. This is in a market where the news will tell you that the oil and gas industry is dying. Everybody's laying people off. No. In this project, this one project right here, they had to increase their CapEx because they couldn't hire enough people. That's mm, a really great point because we still hear so much, like you said, doom and gloom out there. And, and the, gosh, that's a, here's a real-world example right here. Yeah, and it's, it's yes, upstream is suffering. Yes, the service companies that touch upstream is suffering, but that's not the entire industry. That's, it, it, it amazed me to this day. I, I just came back from Oilcom, which is a basically an offshore communication. I shouldn't say offshore, an oil and gas communication conference. And it was amazing the number of vendors that I talked to were singing doom and gloom. And it's like, and I, I talked about these ethylene crackers. I go, these ethylene crackers in the middle of nowhere. They have a need for communications. Mm-hmm. There's money everywhere. And they, they looked at me like I was crazy. And I actually had to show them an article where ExxonMobil's um, International Chemical Division grew 100% revenue year over year. And then a couple of guys said, oh, you Photoshopped that. It's like, no, this came out of Forbes, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's, it's just they don't want to believe that parts of this industry is booming, and, but it is. Yeah, it is to the tune of $11 billion. In Lake Charles, of all places, who, who doesn't need $11 billion besides Lake Charles? You know, if you want to think of a city in the world that looks like it has nothing but petrochemical plants as its primary employer, it's Lake Charles. That, and they have a couple of... Um, um, what am I looking for, James? A couple of them. Um, where you gamble? <laughs> where you gamble? Um, are you putting me on the spot again? Um, yeah, those are casinos. A couple of casinos. So it's all petrochemical plants and casinos. I've actually been to the casinos in Lake Charles. They're nice. Yeah, they're really nice. They are. They are. I didn't gamble, but I looked around. Yeah, but and they, but they're right across the river from petrochemical plants. Yeah, they are because I I walked across the bridge and I said, oh, look at all these uh, all these plants over here. Yeah, that's funny. I can't even remember why the heck I was over there. It's very interesting. All right, let's talk about Energy Pipeline, a tale of two prolific Colorado basins. Yeah, so um, for anybody who doesn't know, Colorado has two of probably the most important oil and gas basins in the country. Um, they have the DJ Basin, which is North Central, and the James, I have no idea how you pronounce this. It's Paisin, I think. Yeah, the the the... Pisan, Pisans, I think. I don't know. I Go ahead. Hey, yeah, somebody, it's the Pisans is what it is. It's the Pisans. Are you sure? Yes. Okay. And if I'm wrong, please correct me, people. 
Yeah. So I've seen this written a hundred times, but I've never heard anybody pronounce it. I believe so, it's like, Byzance. I think I've heard it said lots yep. actually, but I, you know, if I'm wrong, people can, can call me out. Yeah. So um, what makes these basins so great? Not just the recoverable amount of oil and gas, but it has almost everything you need. So it has all the infrastructure so you can get, there's roads and there's airports and there's cities and it, but it also has the pipelines, not only the pipelines to remove uh, the crude and gas you produce, but the pipelines to move the water around that you need to move it to be recycled. Um, all that infrastructure is already sitting there. Um, now, what happens in Colorado is that anytime any um, operator, any producer wants to go drill a well and make some money, they have to they have to crunch the numbers. They have to look at all these parts and pieces and figure out that makes sense because you don't want to go drill a well and lose money. Colorado is is a little bit different because they have two totally opposite political sides in the state when it comes to oil and gas exploration and production. You have the people in Colorado that see the benefits, that you know, know that it brings prosperity to the state, um, that appreciate the tax dollars that builds roads and schools and everything. And then you have the other side who want it to go away, want it to stop completely. And so what happens is if, if you're an operator and you're going to operate one of these two basins, you may get kicked out. You may get mm. shut down. And so even though the basins are just ideal from a um, you know, productivity, from a reservoir, from an infrastructure point of view, you got to figure in whether protesters go shut you. So you got to figure in that, that risk. You got to manage that risk. You got to manage, manage it financially. And so um, it's, it's interesting. We've seen some um, good political um, operations lately. It, you know, two years ago, it was the opposite way. The, the anti-oil and gas uh, groups were actually shutting down parts of Colorado or preventing fracking, whatever. And we actually saw that turned around just recently. And we also said the, saw that the Colorado people changed their constitution to make it harder for these activists to get changes in the constitution. And so, um, you know, the demand for oil and gas is only going to go up. These basins are in their prime, right? And that's talking about current technology. Lord knows what's going to happen. We bring in new technology in the future. And so, you know, you have, you know, you have tons and tons and tons of recoverable natural gas and oil out there. So as long as the people can manage the risk, um, you know, you'll continue to see these two basins, um, you know, rock and roll. And, and interesting is that I think both of them actually ahead of the Marcellus. So that tells you how you know prolific these things are. Yeah. And I mean, like you said, there's so much opportunity there. Um, I, I guess I'm just more used to hearing about the DJ basin than anything. Um, yeah. So I guess John Trubel, I could fill us in on the better place to play. Yeah, we need to get John back on the show. <laughs> Definitely. He can let us know. But yeah, there's there's a ton. There's just a ton of opportunity up there. Um, like you said, it's a matter of managing those risks. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. It's um, There's a group of companies that do well in one, and there's a group of companies that do well in the other, but they don't cross over. <laughs> you know, we've, we've talked about this before that, you know, once somebody learns an area um, and once they get really good, even in a marginal uh a piece of property, they can really make some money. And so once you figure out, even this is a perfect case, once these guys and, and the DJ figure out how to make money in the DJ, they don't want to go anywhere else. They want to stay in the DJ. Um, so it's just kind of cool side note there. All right. So let's talk about natural gas prices because we we keep hinting about uh, projections and where prices are going. But I saw a few different articles about this this week, and I chose uh, the one that wasn't from Seeking Alpha. So is the era of cheap natural gas over? No. <laughs> I thought they might be jumping the gun a little quick, but there have been some movements in the market. So let's talk about it. Well, so the, the price of gas is going up, which it needed to be. Um, you're seeing less gas being put in storage. You're seeing the price start to tick back up. 
Um, and and that's with that's good, especially for the companies out there that are producing gas. But there there is so much natural gas in the world that that barring some type of constraint, such as um, you know some type of war breaking out somewhere or whatever, um, th- there's just a, an unlimited amount of natural gas out there. And so what happens is, as price goes up, it makes it more profitable for people to go drill for gas. And so then more people go drill for gas. They will that will then put more gas on the market, and the price will go down. What you want to do is that that natural market fluctuation going up and going down, you want to try to make that as small as possible so you don't have these wild swings that we just went through. Um, but, you know, do I think we're going to go back up to 7 or uh, $8 per no. million? Beat? No, no. We're going to stay 3 to $4, you know, probably forever. And what's good about that is that that's enough – that's a good enough price that people can make money at. So companies can, can can continue to drill gas and be profitable and employ people. But it keeps the cost for the consumer low for things like electricity because in the U.S. we are moving rapidly toward 100% um, natural gas generation as far as uh, electrical generation from, from fossil fuels. Um, and that's actually good for the environment because when you switch from coal to gas, you automatically decrease emissions by 60%. But by keeping the prices low for the consumer, that's going to increase um, – Things like um, um, you know businesses being able to stock stuff because the transportation cost is lower. People being able to go on vacation, which then throws money in the uh, hotels uh, uh, cash register. So it, it, it's good that it's not going too high. It, we need it just high enough that people can make money, but the low prices will actually help the entire the entire world's population. Yeah, and it seems that the copywriter for the headline might have went a little strong, but the the, the article's conclusions are basically just saying that the sub three dollar might be might be behind us for a while. It is. It is. It's we're we're gonna, we're gonna stay over three dollars. Like I said, between three and four dollars. But I don't expect us to go over four dollars for the conceivable future. Yeah, it's gonna take, like you said, some some massive <laughs> or or something like an unbelievably severe winter that we didn't plan for mm-hmm. that will draw down draw down the supply, which means that prices will spike. But it'll be a temporary spike. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wonder what the farmers almanac is saying saying this year. <laughs> <laughs> Look into that. All right, merchants and acquisitions. Um, Oh my goodness! It looks like I've been hitting the paywall on this one, so we're going to skip that article. Um, I, James, you want me to talk about it? I yeah, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So this is an article um, in um, where Deloitte is saying that um, that drilling activity will drive down costs and lead to more buyers in the Permian Basin. Um, there's been an uptick in M&A activity in the Permian Basin once again because you have people that made bad decisions and they either um, are, are dying for cash, so you can buy them for pennies of the dollar, or unfortunately go through bankruptcy. When you go through bankruptcy and those assets come out, they're sold for pennies on the dollar. And you have other companies that have cash that that knew this was coming, that understands how to, to do business in the oil and gas industry, and they're using their cash right now as a strength. So they're buying um, assets, they're buying properties, they're buying equipment for, for literally pennies on the dollar out there. Um, this is normal. This has been going on forever. It will continue to go on. Um, and it's not an oil and gas specific thing. It's a business thing, right? Um, you're seeing that in steel right now. Globally, there's an oversupply of steel. So the steel companies that have a good logistics, that have good cash flow, are now buying the smaller steel or the other steel companies that made bad decisions <laughs> or don't have good logistics um, or don't have good feeds, uh, raw feedstock. So um, the M&A activity is, is up uh, and it will continue. As, as the price of crude starts creeping up, you'll start seeing more and more M&A activity. You're not going to see a firestorm of it, but as the price creeps up, then it makes business sense for companies to uh, acquire stuff. Yeah, and, and I don't have the headline in front of me, but anything that said the Permian Basin, the way they posed the headline, I was thinking, well, naturally, <laughs> you know, yeah. the Permian Basin, we can't say it enough, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Um, right. 
All right. So, uh, so sorry about that. I hit the paywall. Mark had it open. But this is an interesting one, this next one, because of the fact that it is done by environmentalists trying to uh, make a point. Um, I, I, having my tech background, I, I tend to think uh, when I read this whole story, I thought about in terms of kind of white hat, black hat hackers and exposing vulnerability. And I was kind of thankful for this one. So uh, hear your thoughts on it. Bolt cutters expose vulnerability of North America's oil pipe grid line. There's some stupid people on this planet. I mean, Jesus. So what happened is some environmental actors had a coordinated attempt, a coordinated attack, and they basically found some uh, uh, places where the pipeline's out of the ground. And there's valves installed in the pipeline. And at the same time, they brought some bolt cutters and they cut the chains or, or the, the locks or whatever, walked in, and they turned all these valves off. You manually can just go in there and turn them off. And the reason I say there's some stupid people on the planet is what they didn't think of is think of a train going down a train track, mm -hmm. you know, 100 cars, and all of a sudden a, there's a truck in the way. The train can't stop. Right. The train plows right through it. The oil that's flowing in a pipeline is the same thing as a train on a train track. When you shut that valve down, you have tons and tons of oil behind it pushing. They're lucky they didn't kill somebody or cause you know some uh, you know hard, huge environmental catastrophes. Um, the pipeline companies, when they need to shut down these pipes, it's done in stages and it's done slowly mm -hmm. uh, to keep that pressure from building up. This was just just I mean, this is this should be criminal. I hope they catch these people and put them in jail because they could have easily killed people or caused a huge environmental catastrophe. Um, and the problem is, you go well, Mark. Don't, don't these companies have money? Can't they put up guards? They do have guards in, in mission-critical facilities. And in places like compressor stations, there's cameras and they're manned. Um, but when you have millions of miles – remember, we have enough pipeline uh, just here in, the, in North America go, to go around the world 19 times. Mm -hmm. When you have that many miles of pipe and you have to have valves every so often in case there's a leak so you can cut it off and fix it, you just can't protect all that. But just the audacity for somebody going there who doesn't understand how a pipeline works and start twisting valves. I mean, it's just it's criminal. So there's no there's so from my perspective, there's no upside to them putting, you know, even though the their their heads are in the wrong place or their hearts are in the wrong place. Um, there's there's no upside to to going, oh, wow, we need a little more security here and there. Yeah, this is something that's been going on. The other thing that's going on, and this is physical security. The other thing that's going on is, is as new pipelines are built, it's the traffic's all IP. Um, it's all internet. Um, the old traffic was um, all analog. So in the old ways, if you wanted to um, access a remote valve or a shunt or a choke or whatever, you would physically have to drive out to the site, find the wire like MacGyver would do, and then clip on some clips to the wire and send the right signal down there. So it was harder to hack. Now, anybody with a computer, if they're smart enough, they can get through the firewalls, um, can access this equipment. So it's, it's kind of a, a, a cat and mouse game where the security people in oil and gas are trying to stay ahead of the bad guys. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, as we move forward with better technology pipelines or refineries or oil rigs, you're just going to have more um, access for the bad guys because they have connectivity to the Internet in some shape or fashion. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know... This this will cause a reaction. I don't know what the reaction will be because, um, you know, you just can't afford to put a human guard on every one of these places where the pipe comes out of the ground. And they have a shutoff valve. You just, you just can't do it. Right. Um, common sense, for as long as I've known, has says, you know, when you see an area that's fenced off and it says warning, keep out, danger, don't touch this, you shouldn't go snip the lock and go start turning valves. Right. Right. Again, I'm not very much not in favor of what they did. I'm I'm just sort of, I guess, practically looking at. Um, 
you know, like I said, from the hacking side of things, but yeah, what the, they you know, did is ridiculous, obviously. So, so the other thing is, so I have a Twit card and I can't remember what it stands for. Basically, it's where the government did a background check on me because if I want to go to a pipeline company, if I want to go walk the pipe or inside a refinery, mm -hmm. that's part of um, Department of Homeland Security because it provides vital fuel for our people and for our military. And so, I mean, in some ways, this, this environmental group has actually attacked our Department of Homeland Security is part of their critical infrastructure. Mm. So it's just, just yeah, don't, don't, no good. don't do this. I, I respect your right to protest as much as you want. Don't do stuff like this. You could get somebody killed. They, yeah, they could have easily killed themselves. Um, all right. So here's something that you've talked about. I know that you actually had a show titled about the drones. Um, so let's cap it off with GE drones are coming to squeeze more savings from the oil patch. This is so cool. Um, so this isn't this isn't um, conjecture. GE's going full commercial. This they're going out. Um, there's they already have buyers for it, um, and it's more than just drones. So there's some proposed regulation out there where operators have to monitor methane emissions, and the only way that I know they do it now is there's a camera that uh, you can uh, look through, and it will show you the methane. It's sort of like a thermal imaging camera, but instead of thermal imaging, so I guess it's methane imaging. Mm -hmm. But that's not very scalable. That means somebody in real time has to walk with this thing and look at everything all the time. What they're doing with the drones is they'll, they'll set a predetermined path. So you know, here's 100 miles of pipe that I want you to fly every day. Here's um, you know, 80 wells in the Bakken I want you to fly every day. And the, the, the drones have the sensors to measure the methane. And what happens, that's a lot of data. Well, then all that data gets put someplace and you start doing big data analytics on that data. So you can start seeing trends such as, oh, when this operator is operating, they have a 3% increase in methane versus this operator. Well, let's go see what he's doing differently. Or um, during the winter, this pipeline had um, less um, um, incidents of leaking methane than in the summer. Well, let's go figure it out why. And it's just stuff that people can't figure out um, because you can't crunch that much data in your head. So, so the, the drone part is cool, but the thing that's cooler to me is what they're doing with that drone. They're using it to gather data that um, will then be um, uh, analyzed in a way that just people can't. And it will come out and show us things that can be fixed and drive efficiencies in the field and, and safety too, HS&E metrics. So mm -hmm. this is really cool stuff. Yeah, it talks about GE is working on having Raven make methane inspections go three times faster. That is, that, that, that's a lot of savings in the oil field. Yeah, and think about that. You don't need people to do that. And I, you know, I don't don't start complaining about how the um, technology is going to replace your jobs. You may have to learn a new skill set, but the technology is going to make it safer um, than some guy. I mean, would you want to be walking a pipeline in Alaska when the grizzly bears just come out of hibernation? <laughs> <laughs> Not me. I don't know many people that want to walk a lot of the pipeline doing these inspections in the first place. So. Yeah, and then and then think about this. How many professional drone engineers do you think there were in oil and gas five years ago? None. Yeah, but now this is a new job. Yeah. Think if you like drones, you're going to go and now work for Chevron. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. is cool. Yeah, that is great stuff. All right, so um, those are all of our stories. I'm going to have a link in the show notes to um, the Trump-Clinton time of my life duet that the internet so joyfully put together for us. That'll uh, take place of our weekly Onion and Bulwark has a winner. I will uh, step aside and let you do the honors, Mr. LaCour. Yeah, congratulations, Alex Bruns. Global procurement champion at Baker Hughes. Boy, Products. I love Baker Hughes. Oh, well, product champion. Yeah, Baker Hughes. I, I talked to Alex on the phone last week. He's the oh. man. He's the one who emailed us and, uh, and told us about the, um, the core digitizing. 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so James, here's that karma thing again, <laughs> right? <laughs> if you, if you, if you interact with us, leave us a review, do something like that. For some reason, you see them pop up, and we—I promise you—this is totally random. Yeah, we have we no have control nothing. over this. We don't even touch we this. Just get Somebody an email. else does this. Yeah, we yeah. get an email from the company. Um, so yeah, congratulations, Alex. Um, you have the Bulwark two-tone base layer, and if you want to win your own Bulwark two-tone base layer, go to bulwark.com. B-U-L-W-A-R-K dot com forward slash podcast to register and thank you to everyone who's supporting our sponsors we're getting a lot of people signing up it's fantastic it's a damn good looking shirt too i hear a damn good looking shirt the fashion accessory of the year like or whatever you say all right events on deck you found a couple before we jumped on the mic so we've got um sunday october 16th through tuesday october 18th we have the 2016 environmental conference going on in new orleans louisiana so tell us about that yeah, so you know how much I've been talking about downstream for the last two years? Mm-hmm. This is a conference focusing on the regulatory and policies issues at the plant level. Oh, you better if, get there. Yeah, if you're in that world, I really wish I could go. If you're in this world, you need to be there. Um, and, it, you know, this is a beautiful time of year to actually spend some time in New Orleans. So um, 2016 Environmental Conference put on by American Fuel and Petroleum Manufacturers. Good show. Get your butt over there if you're in that world. Yeah, definitely. And then we've got um, goodness out in West Texas, Odessa, Texas, at the Ector County Coliseum, the Permian Basin International Oil Show from the October 18th through the 20th. So get out to West Texas. Yeah. um, The worst night of my life since I've been in the oil and gas industry and going to a conference and staying out too late and drinking too much (laughs) was out here. No, not in Odessa. These boys know how to party. Um, so if you want to party with the big boys and you also <laughs> want to learn about what's going on in the, the, um, the um, Permian, this is a great show. It's not a big show, but it's, it's a close show. Um, one of the things I love about it is it's like it's, it's everybody's so outgoing and friendly. If you want to know something, just ask them. They'll tell you. Yeah. You'll see a lot of, of, of the local vendors there, the guy, the boots on the ground uh, out there. And, um, you know, this thing's been going around since it's been going on since 1940. Wow. So, yeah. So, um, you know, great show. I wish I could make this one as well. Um, if you go, just make a date in your head that at this point I'm going to stop drinking and go back home. Because <laughs> if you don't, you'll be hurting the next you day. You throw on your Stetson and get out of there to Odessa. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I love it out there. I love I love our West. As um, Bob Black, yeah, formerly with Drilling Info, used to say, the oil business is is uh, headquartered in Houston. The oil business is in Midland, Odessa. Um, all right, so the first Friday Q&A is a few weeks away. Um, we, As we said on the last one, we're hearing from a lot of people that want more Q&A shows, but we need more questions. So how can they do that, Mark? The easiest thing to do is go to tryrocket.com forward slash QA. Uh, you also uh, can plug your earbuds into your uh, smartphone, uh, record an audio question, and send we it just to got one. We just got oh, one. Oh, we just got one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he loves that sort of stuff. So any way you can get us a question, I've actually had people send me questions on Twitter, um, which which I'm totally fine with. I would actually prefer if you go to the show this way, if I delete it, I, I, this way I can't delete it, accidentally delete it. But um, yeah, any way you can get us the questions, let us know. This has become one of our most popular segments of Oil and Gas this week. And if we get enough questions, we'll make it a regular show. Yeah, we, we definitely will. And um, no reviews this week, unfortunately, but we, we are keep on getting a ton of uh, five-star ratings. So when you open the app, you can, you know, hit the five stars and as opposed to uh, leaving the review. And we pr- appreciate everyone giving us feedback. Um, so anything on that, Mark? Yeah. If you like the show, give us, do us a favor, leave us a review. It takes a couple of minutes. Um, it helps your peers find us and realize that we're good. 
When you see a lot of those four and five star uh, reviews on a podcast, you know you want to pay a little bit of more attention to that one. Yeah, definitely. And um, and if you, it's a one star review, we'll take whatever you got. Um, and then we've got the LinkedIn group. I think we're coming up on 1500, triberocket.com forward slash LinkedIn. And what can they search for, Mark? Because it's not oil and gas this week. Nope, it's uh, Oil and Gas Global Network. And what I understand, if you type in OGGN, we come right up. It's the home of this show, of Oil and Gas HS&E, of our other shows, which, by the way, if you're listening, do you know we have another show called Oil and Gas HS&E? Go, yeah. go listen. Yeah, go listen. Um, and we have several more shows in the work. It's also where we announce our um, live events, and all of our live events are going to be limited, so you'd want to know about it first so you get a chance to get in. So go join the LinkedIn group. It's a great place uh, to for you and your oil and gas family. Yeah, triberocket.com forward slash LinkedIn. You can get the show notes, all of the stories and everything at triberocket.com forward slash TW86 um, on that one. Uh, so as Mark said, as opposed to sending his questions and everything, we just put everything in one place for you. Um, really easy to remember. It's just uh, triberocket, then forward slash and TW and the show number. This one's 86. You can share the show, which we we strongly encourage and greatly appreciate by going to triberocket.com forward slash share a live for LinkedIn forward slash share TW for Twitter and forward slash share FB for Facebook. You got anything else to add, Mark? No, if, um, if you share the show, let us know, send us a screenshot or something. We got some special, uh, unique, um, very hard to come by prizes for people that do stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. We're working on, we're working on new things all the time. All right, Mark, I got to get going. You ready to go? Yeah. So folks do great work, pay it forward and we will see you next time. Go find some grease guys. Forward slash QA. Oh, yeah. Try Rocket Easiest thing to do is go to Try Rocket Tom. Duh.